0: 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And this morning's sermon is titled, This Is My Legacy. We're looking at King David's final words. What lessons are there in store for us? What is it that God would speak to us today through this passage? I'm going to read 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 through 10 And then down in verse 20. And then we'll pray once more. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, and the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds, and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. Then King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So now, in the sight of all Israel, and the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. And as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, He will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. And down in verse 20, then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that your spirit would overcome any resistance or reluctance in our own hearts to be all in for you. You desire for us and we see so clearly in your word that we would live for you, that we would live surrendered lives for you, throwing ourselves into the kingdom work that you have prepared for us. But we also confess that we get caught up in the cares of this life We get easily distracted by worry and even by fear. And today, God, we pray that you would pull back the curtain, that we would see your glory, your beauty, and what it is that you have for us so that we might come to the place where every one of us says, God, we're all in. Holy Spirit, would you do that? And for anyone who does not yet know you, would you reveal yourself to them? Show them what you have done for them in the person of your Son, jesus that they might believe and be saved even today we ask it in jesus name and everyone said amen Amen. if you only had one month left to live what would you absolutely need to pass on to your family what would you absolutely need to pass on to your friends And today, I'm not necessarily talking about material possessions or wealth. I am talking about your whole life, the lessons that you've learned, the character, the type of person that you have become, your legacy. What would you say? If you knew your time was short, what would you say? What is so important that you just would have to communicate it in the final weeks of your life? Well, whether you are prepared or not, for that day. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Some of you might be younger in years and yet we do not know what next week or next month or next year holds. And whether you're prepared or not, all of us right now are leaving something. We are leaving an impression or we are leaving an example. This will be your legacy. We all leave one. We're all building one right now. The question is, what will it be? Or What should it be? Now, I don't want you to just think about the the end of your life. I also want you to think about what it is that you are doing now, your time here, whether you live in Carpinteria or Santa Barbara, Ventura, anywhere. I want you to think about your time in this church, how you serve, how you operate, how you involve yourself. And I believe that in doing so, we will receive this passage today as a charge to every one of us. See, over the past 12 weeks, we've been talking about choices. We've been talking about how your choices shape your character, and these choices together will will leave a a legacy. I remember years ago reading uh, this famous statement from the poet Emerson. It just resonated with me. He said, Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. I know that character is not always the top priority on our list when we think of day-to-day life, but it should be. Though many of us, we don't wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and you're going, oh, I'm going to work on my character today. Like most of us don't think that. We think I got to get to work. I got to make money. Those things aren't bad, but we must give attention to our character. How all the little choices that you and I make day in, day out, they actually shape the type of person that we become and the people around us will be affected by it. See, here in our passage today, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, King David has grown old. King David is on his deathbed. He is about to die, but there is a problem. All the people in Israel, they're so used to to following David. And if they wanted to discern what God's heart and what God's direction was for them as a nation, naturally, they would look to King David. They would look to him for direction, but David's about to die. And the question on everyone's mind was, well, how can we move forward? What are we going to do? How do we connect with God? And so David takes this opportunity to be so clear that their hope was never to be in King David. Their hope was to be in God, in what God provides. And so David says, listen up. It is important that every one of you hear what I am saying. He even says to his own son, Solomon, Solomon, I want you to listen today to what I have to say because there's work to be done. You have a temple to build. See, this is King David's passing the torch speech. He is taking here a lifetime of lessons and he's passing it on. He's saying, this is my legacy. This is what is important. This is what I want you to take with you. And though these words were spoken by King David to his son Solomon, they are also spoken to every one of us today. Because they have truths for every heart and lessons for every life. You don't need to wait until your deathbed to hear them. You and I need them now. So what are we given in David's last words? We are given a a pattern. We are given a purpose and we are given a promise. There's a pattern of life, a purpose in life and a promise for life. Firstly, King David gives us a pattern. In verses 1 through 8, David here is recounting his own pattern of life, recognizing the effects that it has on others. And that's true for every one of us, because whether you realize it or not, and whether you like it or not, right now, you are forming patterns in your life that affect your own soul and the souls of people around you. And my question for you this morning is this, should those people follow your pattern? Your children, if you have children, every day they're looking at your life. They see the pattern that you lead. Is it a pattern that they should follow? The people around you in this church, they watch your life. They see your rhythms. They see how you spend your time. They see how you spend your your money. You're creating a pattern, whether you're aware of it or not. The question is, is it the type of pattern that other people should follow? See, I'm, I'm thinking about this constantly, especially when I think about my children. Because as we all know, kids remember everything. They just do. Those times when I lose my temper when I'm on the phone for like eight hours with AT&T because their service is terrible, they remember. My oldest child remembers when I get frustrated, forgetting that there's actually an image bearer of God on the other line. Or I think, I think, customer service representative, which is now being phrased as a relationship manager, you notice that there's a change reminding us that they are humans and that I must show the fruit of the spirit to them. But see, when, when, when I forget that my kids see it, am I leaving a pattern that they can follow? If you were to follow me around every day this week, 24 hours a day, it would be creepy. But if you were to do that, would I be leaving a pattern that you could actually follow? See, even as I say that, I get a little nervous. I'm like, eh, maybe, sometimes. Sunday's definitely just like up, seeking the Father, like, I'm gonna preach today. Oh, God, anoint me by your Spirit. Mondays, well, we'll see. But the point is, even though many of us, we might get nervous if we thought about everybody following us around. Yes, we may fall on our faces at times, but listen, I want to live my life in such a way that I set a pattern for other people to follow. Isn't that what Paul the Apostle said? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, very bold words, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. <laughs> That's a statement, quite bold of Paul, but it is not arrogant. Paul's not saying, hey, I want you to be like me as the end product. He's saying, join me As I depend on God. I want to depend on God, so I want you to depend on God, so follow my example. In fact, he makes this even more clear in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says there in chapter 11, follow my example as I follow Christ. See, from David, we learn this as well. This day, he's he's recounting the pattern for, for his life. Now, I fail often, you fail often. David has failed as well, but he recognizes it. And so as he recounts the pattern of his life, we notice firstly, it is a pattern of honesty. He's very honest about his sins and his shortcomings, specifically in verses two and three. He's done great things, yet he was a man of blood. He brought the kingdom by force. Earlier on in his life, he committed murder and he committed adultery. But he repented, and he was forgiven by God. Just like you and I, we can be forgiven. And so what we learn from David is this pattern of his life was not perfection, but it was honest. He was honest about his sins, honest about his failures. And friends, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. It is the most honest book on the planet. See, if you and I were to write our own autobiographies, we would most likely minimize our failures and our shortcomings. We'd say, yeah, it was kind of a hard time, but then I did this great thing. And you know, for some reason, some people think that when they read the Bible, all they're going to read about is like a, a, a long list of heroes that have done nothing but amazing things. But we all know that that's not the case. When you read Scripture, you find men and women, real and raw, those who are broken in their own sin, yet also those who experience the redemption of God and the power of His Holy Spirit. And you and I, we are in that same boat. I say this because sometimes when we think about our growth or our life patterns, we tend to think about it as a straight line going from immature all the way to mature. But if we are honest about the patterns of our growth, it looks a little bit more like your finances. Like, oh, it goes up. Oh, it went really down. It kind of went up. And hopefully the trend is maturity. See, notice David, even in admitting his failures, David is actually setting a pattern for us. Honesty and repentance should be a part of daily life. That means that as we live in community, we are to be quick to repent to one another. We need to repent to our spouses. Maybe even today you need to repent to your wife. In fact, men, you'd probably do well to right now turn to your wife. I want you to turn to them right now and say these magical words. It'll bring miraculous change in your marriage. These magical words. Turn to them right now and say, I was wrong. (laughs) Try it. Oh, the women are clapping. (laughs) Oh, I I see a longer conversation going on over there. We know how Sunday mornings can be. Isn't that beautiful? Now, wives, you can also turn to your husbands and say, I was sort of wrong. (laughs) See, this is good. Repentance, opening up about this. This is how the Christian life should be lived. Listen, we even need to repent in front of our children. This past week, I had to repent to my, my oldest daughter. I didn't handle a situation well, as oftentimes I don't. And I just needed to say to her, like, hey, I'm sorry for doing this. We need to live a life of repentance. And that's what David is doing. And that's the pattern that he, is, that he is setting forth here. We need to repent. Though you sin, though we fail, we can still set a good pattern by repenting, knowing that God forgives and God redeems. And that's wonderful news for you and I. See, David is speaking to a son. Think about this. David is speaking to a son that was born from Bathsheba. Bathsheba, the woman that he took sinfully and wrongfully. And David acknowledged this and he repented of it. And yet, because God redeems, he was able to have a son. Teaching us this, and make no mistake, God does not condone our bad choices. When David sinned with Bathsheba, God didn't say, oh, no big deal. I'll sweep it under the rug. It's not what God said. God does not condone our bad choices, but he is able to redeem them as we repent and as we surrender to him. And therefore, our pattern of life should be one of honesty, but it should also be one of humility. Humility. Notice in verse four, as he's addressing this huge crowd, I mean, you can imagine the scene. David's about to die. He calls everyone, all these leaders, all these servants in his kingdom, he calls them together for this massive meeting. And there, though the king, when he would address his people, would often address them as servants, notice his humility here in his speech, he addresses them as brethren. He recognizes that before God, they are all on the same level. He says, you, my brethren. It would have been very easy for him as a king to say, I'm above all of you, you are lesser people, I'm a greater person, but he doesn't do that. He says, my brothers, before God, we are all on the same level. He's showing humility. We've learned over this series, humility is a virtue, one that is cultivated with a proper understanding of yourself and a proper understanding of God. And this humility is expressed even more when David talks about his own kingship. Now, David could have taken this opportunity to talk about how his kingship was earned through all of his hard work, how his kingship was earned through his ingenuity and his bravery and all of this, but he doesn't do that. It would have been very easy on this moment, on his deathbed speech, to say to Solomon and to say to the rest of his people, well, You know, I got here to be king through a lot of hard work and you too, through a lot of physical exercise, flossing every day and, you know, being, fighting the Philistines, you too can be a king like me. And oftentimes that is what we see in our culture. Like, look at all the great things that I do. And someday you too, if you want to be a great man or woman of God, you can be like me. But David doesn't say that. What does he say? God chose me. Instead of saying, look at all, you know, oh, yeah, when I started my career, remember when I fought the giant? His name's Goliath. I don't know if you know um, about it. People wrote songs about me. as in the top 10 charts in Israel at the time. Um, you may have forgotten. David could have done that, but he, he doesn't. He, when he talks about why he is king, he simply says, God chose me. And then when he talks to Solomon, Solomon, lest you think that it is by your own effort or the fact that you earned it, lest you think any of those thoughts, I want to remind you right now, God chose you. And I know the same is true for my life and for yours. When we breathe our last and when we see Jesus Christ face to face, none of us will be able to say it was through my own effort. It was through my hard work. It was through my, my own righteousness. We will not say that. We will say it is grace and nothing but grace that has brought me here. David is showing humility here, and you and I also must show humility. Lest any of us say, I earned this. His pattern was humble, and so should our pattern be. But lastly, it was also helpful. David left a pattern of helpfulness. I love that on the day that David is charging his son Solomon to build the temple, he goes on for verses 11 through 18, the passage I didn't read. It has all these details about all the the models, the money, and the materials that he has left for the people so that they could get to work. David actually prepared in a very practical, down-to-earth way. And that is so helpful, so helpful of David to do that. And in many ways, I see here a, a picture of the church. You and I have a glorious calling to help build for God's kingdom as we involve ourselves in his church. And to do that, God has given each and every one of us unique gifts and different abilities and possessions. All these things, we are instructed in scripture to use all that we have, our time, our talent, and our treasure together to invest. We are the church. We're to be working together. We're to lay up resources for others so that they also might flourish and be fruitful. We're called to do this. We're called to invest. My question for you, church, is are you invested? Is this all theory for you? You're like, yeah, the church, it's great, but are you actually involved? Are you actually participating? Are you actually using your time? Are you actually using your gifts? I know that there's a great temptation for some of you to think, well, nobody notices me. Like, you know, I use my gifts, but nobody said thank you. And if I left, nobody would notice. And nobody really values me. Listen, that is Satan talking to you, not Jesus. Because when I read Scripture, I read what Paul says about the body, which is the church. And he says very clearly every member plays a role, every member matters. That's what Scripture says. And therefore, it doesn't matter how small or how great your gifts are, they are to be used in the church. Listen, your lack of involvement, your lack of presence, it's felt. When you're not serving, when you're not using what God has given you and using your gifts to encourage or equip or build up, listen, when you're not doing that, it is noticed. Your lack of presence is felt. Don't allow lies to keep you from fruitfulness in this church. Get involved. Get involved. Get in the game. Could people next to you follow your example in how to invest in the church? I mean, imagine if the whole row next to you was nothing but new Christians. They just got saved yesterday, and they look to you, and they say, how do you get involved in the church? Would they be able to look at your life and find a model? Or would you be, like I have been oftentimes, super jaded saying, well, here's what you should do. You should go worship today because that's what you should do. You should take communion. You should probably get involved. I don't really do those things anymore. I used to. It was exciting for a time, but I don't really do it anymore. Like, listen, some of you are there. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, no, it's great. I'm so happy. You're so cute. Little honeymoon Christians, you know, that's so darling. But listen, after five years, you know what's going to happen. You're going to start feeling entitled. You're going to start feeling jaded, and then you're not going to do anything. Listen, wake up. <laughs> get out of it. Get out of your pity party and just get involved. It doesn't matter. How, how much you, you feel your gifts have been used or not because scripture tells us that we are to do work heartily with all of our hearts as unto who? The Lord. He is the one that sees us. He is the one that is watching over us. What we need to do is set a pattern for others to follow. Involve yourselves. Leave this pattern. Now, some of you are saying, why should I care? Why does this matter? Why do I have to work hard to leave a pattern? Well, I'm very glad you asked that question. Because secondly, David not only gives us a pattern, he gives us a purpose. In verses 9 through 10, in his beautiful speech to his son Solomon. And it's about purpose. See, you and I are told from a very young age that we need to find a purpose in life. But listen, David is not just giving us a purpose. He's giving us the purpose, and that purpose is God. And he states this in three ways. What would David say to his son? What would be his his dying words to his own son? What would the first thing that you were to say to your own son or daughter as you're dying? Well, here's David's, no God. It's the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he speaks specifically to his son Solomon. Look at verse nine, in the beginning. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. In other words, the most important thing that you must hear, especially now as I'm ready to, to leave this world, know God. Now, why would David say that? After all, Solomon was raised in this environment where Israel would worship God. And no doubt, he would hear scripture being read and taught. And they would talk about the law of God. No doubt, David would talk about God. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit redundant? I mean, hadn't Solomon his whole life already known about God? Yes. But what David is saying here is very powerful. Because what he's essentially saying is this. Solomon... I want you to know the God we're always talking about. I know that you know about God, but do you know God? I know that you've heard about his ways. You've heard about his character, but I want you to know him. I suppose a modern day parallel would be those of you who are actually raised in a a Christian environment, and, and your mother or your father taught you about Christ, taught scripture to you. And that's really great. That's a wonderful, you know, inheritance that you have. But the question is, do you know God? David is saying to Solomon, the one thing I want most for you more than anything else is I want you to have a real relationship with God. That is what I want for you. Church, this is the very core and center of life. Our whole lives are to be centered around God. If God is not central, then your life will revolve around something that can never sustain it. You're just gonna make an idol out of something that will never sustain you, only disintegrate your soul and break your heart and bring dishonor to the very God who loves us. David says to his son, David says to us, know the God you're always talking about. It may be that even some of you have been coming to church for a while and you're thinking, okay, this is great. Like I'm I'm learning and I'm hearing scripture read. That's good and fine. But listen, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Have you said, God, I want to know you through your son? Know him, David says. Know the God you're always talking about. Open your heart to him. Set your affections on him. And if this is the case, listen think about how strengthening this is. If the first and most important aspect of life is to know God, think about what that means for your identity. It means that you are a child of God first, and then you are everything else second. You are a child of God first before you are a mother. You are a child of God first before you're a father, a child of God first before you're a a worker or a teacher or an artist. You're a child of God first. (laughs) Listen, because we tend to reverse that, right? We say, I'm an artist, and I know about God. No, no, no. Or you might say, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom. And yeah, I study about God. Oh no, friends, it is. I am a child of God first. I am a, a son or daughter of God. And then I am a teacher, then I am a worker, then I am an employee, then I'm a mother, a father, a husband, or a wife. But first, I am a child of God because the Bible teaches us this that you are worshipers first and workers second. And we need to get that straight. You are worshipers first and you are workers second. In fact, all that we do is meant to flow out of that nearness to God. In fact, a a phrase that's been used ever since I met Pastor Britt Merrick, a phrase that's been used within the reality family of churches that really has served as kind of a, a mantra for how our philosophy of ministry is this, that all ministry must flow from intimacy. It is from a place of knowing God and being with him that we then can step out and serve and be fruitful. And indeed, this is what God wants for us. And that's what David says to his own Solomon, son Solomon. Know God and secondly, serve God. Serve him. As for you, my son Solomon, verse nine, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent Of your thoughts. It means that we take all that we know about God, all that we know about His purposes, and that we put them into practice. See, our service to our church, our service in our marriages, our families, our communities, it's the evidence that we know our God. Our service to one another is evidence that our hearts have been touched and changed by God. See, we all know that our words matter. We all know that that what we preach matters. But does the way we live back it up? Is there a a disparity between what we believe and how we live? That's a very important question. And you and I need to ask that. Do I actually practice what I preach? Because a lot of times, especially within church, we have a lot of words. But we don't always have the works to back it up. And that can be very troubling. I'll never forget when I heard uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was you know, one of the great Christian thinkers of the last century. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Meaning it's one thing to say, here's what we believe, and this is amazing, and this is beautiful, but we aren't, if we aren't exemplifying it, that's horrendous. See, character, though not a replacement for our words, our character is like a microphone. Our character is like an amplifier for our words. We need to speak truth and we need to hear truth, but we also need to live it out. We must know God and serve him. And here is where I think we tend to go wrong. On the one hand, some of us, we serve God, but without knowing him. Well, that's just legalism. Oh, I'm doing all these things, following the Christian life, but I don't know God. All of my my works, it's not coming out of an actual living, breathing relationship with God, but, oh, I'm checking off all the religious boxes. But see, serving him without knowing him, it's just legalism. But then there's another extreme. Some of you might claim to know him, but you're not serving him. Well, that's just lawlessness. You're saying, like, oh, I love to worship. I love this song. God, you're so amazing. And God says, will you keep my commandments? You're like, no, not really. God, you're so great. Will you follow my ways? No, I'm going to do my own thing. Oh, I read Oswald Chambers this morning. So good! But I'm not actually going to follow Jesus. Friends, that is a dangerous place to be. You're just lawless. You're following your own rules. You're not truly worshiping God. See, those are two errors that we're going to... Temptations that we're constantly going to face, but we must avoid both of those because knowing him and serving him, well, that's love. And that's the place that God wants us to be. For he says, David is very quick to address the motive behind our service, he says at the end of verse nine, he says, for the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And earlier he says, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. That means you and I, when we think about service, we're to serve with a whole heart. What does that mean? A whole heart does not mean a perfect heart. Don't misunderstand this. Rather, a whole heart means a devoted heart. It means the whole of your life is connected to God. It means that you don't chop up your life into different pieces and give some of it to God and keep the rest for yourself. Which, if we're honest, is a very easy thing to do. I'm sure that you've heard uh, many times the, the metaphor of a house as being a picture of your heart. And that our relationship with Christ could be exemplified by how many rooms we allow him to dwell in within our home. And to be frank, some of us are saying, hey, Jesus, come on in to my living room. It's amazing. My mid-century modern furniture. I got a couple candles because it's Advent because I observe it. Come on in, hang out, but don't you dare go in the bedroom. Don't go in the closet. Don't go in the study. I just want you to stay here, Jesus. See, that may be the case for many of us. Yes, Jesus, come into my life, but stay over here. That would be great because I'm going to get on with my own stuff over here. But that's not what God wants. God says, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Think about that phrase. It means that as you hear his word and you understand it, you're ready to do it. Like even right now, it means that you need to have an inner dialogue with the Holy Spirit saying, I'm going to listen to you and I want to, by your power, put this into practice. A phrase we often Uh, used to use in Reality lay is we would say, I'm not just looking for agreement, I'm looking for ownership. Because it would be very easy for many of us just to agree with this, say, yes, I agree with that, but are you owning it? Are you owning it? We need to be instructed. We need the Lord to search our hearts, the secret of our souls, open before God. We need to know him first and foremost. We need to serve him. And thirdly, we need to seek him. We need to seek him, as David says at the end. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Seek God, which speaks of commitment. It means that you don't wait to the end of your life. You don't say, when I'm 65, then I'm really going to serve Jesus. But right now it's a little busy. No. It means that you seek him now and commit. And this call to seek him is not just for one type of person. But to every one of you in the room, whether you're young or you're old, new Christian, not yet Christian, seasoned Christian, whatever, God calls all of you to to seek him. And the promise is that if you seek him, he will be found. Listen, God's not playing some cruel game of hide and seek, like seek me, not here. Pray to me, not listening. Like that is not God. That's not going to happen. If you seek him, he will be found. But if you reject him, then you will be rejected. There's a sober warning here. How do we understand it? Well, if God is the source of life, our sustainer, our happiness, our, our joy, that every good and beautiful thing comes from him, then the worst thing, the worst fear that any human should have is separation from God. See, some of you today are maybe afraid that God's out to get you. Like, oh no, we, I, I used to use that phrase, like, God's out to get me. But listen, your worst fear that is that God should leave you. That should be your worst fear. Because the Bible describes a world without God as eternal darkness. And this is the destination of those who reject God. See, the alternative to seeking God is rejecting God. And David is saying, do not do that. To forsake God is to choose an identity in the opposite direction. Saying, God, I hear that you're a king, but I'm going to be my own king. The Bible calls this being lost. And because of sin, all of us naturally, we are lost. We have alienated ourselves from God. And so naturally we are headed in the direction of eternal darkness. But the good news is that God sent his son to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus opened the way for us. He sought us and he made a payment for our sins when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago. So seek him, how? By believing on Jesus and following Jesus. That is how you and I, that's how we seek God. If you want mercy, you will find it in Jesus. If you want grace, you will find it in Jesus. If you want purpose, you will find it in Jesus. If you need direction and wisdom and power and strength, you will find it in Jesus. If you're not yet saved and you ask for salvation, you will find it in Jesus. Listen, there will never be a soul in hell who says, I sought mercy in Jesus, but I didn't find it. That will never be stated. For Jesus himself said powerfully in John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So trust your soul to Jesus. For some of you today, that might be the first time. For the rest of you, church, continue to trust your soul to him repent, ask for forgiveness, do the work that he's called you to do. I know that some of you in that moment think, well, no, I've gone too far. I've I've done too many things. Listen, that is just simply not the case because no one is too guilty and no one is too good. No one is too guilty that they cannot be saved and no one is too good that they don't need saving. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We need his rescue. And because of Christ, we can seek him. So seek him by trusting him and following him. This is the purpose for you. Know God, serve him and seek him. But David doesn't end there. He ends with a promise and it's a promise for life. And he says it beautifully to his son Solomon in verse 20. Then David said to his son, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. David's final charge comes with a promise. And it echoes many of the other passing the torch speeches found in the Bible. In some ways, you could say that King David is like a second Moses, charging the next leader, Joshua, or like the Apostle Paul charging young Pastor Timothy in the New Testament. So before we look at the nature of the promise, put yourself in David's shoes. David is passing the church. And this, there's a great responsibility for you and I to do that within the church. Like Paul did it with Timothy. Listen to what he writes in his last letter to young Timothy. He said, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. See What a lesson for us. That's part of our responsibility. We need to teach the things that we've learned and pass them on to others. What a shame if David had made all this preparation but didn't pass anything on to Solomon. And what a tragedy if Solomon didn't listen So the same encouragement that was given to Joshua, the same encouragement that was given to Solomon is ours. And it's given to everyone who believes. There's this charge for you and I to be courageous and to act, but do so knowing the promise of God, which is simply this. The Lord is with you and he will not fail you nor forsake you. That's the promise. As some of you might get stressed out thinking, okay, well, I want to give myself to God's kingdom work, but how am I going to do it? I'm just weak and I'm frail. Listen, I get it. But what I'm banking on is the promise of God where he says, the Lord is with you and the Lord will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. So that means for every one of you, get to work. Get to work. Work together. Finish the work that God has called you to do. David is no doubt thinking that as he's ending his life, in fact, I love one of my favorite sentences in the book of Acts, is when Paul the Apostle is giving a sermon, and in his sermon, he makes a reference to King David, and when he does, it's one simple sentence. It's basically David's eulogy. In Acts 13, verse 36, it says, "Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors." What a great verse. Basically, Paul is saying, David did what he was supposed to do and then died. Awesome. I want that to be on my tombstone. That's all that matters. God, I just want to serve my purpose and then go to be with you. I want it to be as simple as that. Not to be morbid, but that's what I want on my tombstone, honey. When I was a new Christian... When I was a new Christian, I remember reading, you know, early on about all these, like, you know, saints of old and and even the the men and women that used greatly of God in the last few hundred years, especially the preachers. And one of them in particular was George Whitefield. Oh, what a spicy preacher he was. Tonight, before you go to bed, download a sermon of George Whitefield. You'll get saved all over again. Wonderful. George Whitefield was a preacher used greatly of God in a period of our history and also in England known as the Great Awakening. And George Whitefield was just a crazy preacher who would go from town to to, to town in sickness and in health, preaching the gospel to upwards of hundreds of thousands of people, even very famous people in his day, like Benjamin Franklin, who upon hearing one of George Whitefield's sermons said, oh, I'm not going to listen to this guy. But by the very end, even Benjamin Franklin, who never believed on the gospel of Christ, was actually giving money out of his own pocket to support the orphanages that George Whitefield was advocating for. So George Whitfield's this crazy preacher, but throughout his life, towards the end, his health deteriorated. And on one occasion, in 1770, one of his friends said, well, I know you have a preaching schedule ahead of you, but you're more fit for your bed than you are for the pulpit. And George Whitfield said, "Yes, I know, but the Lord will strengthen me." and so he goes out to this field, and there's thousands of people waiting, and George Whitfield was weak, and he's sitting in his chair and he was too frail to get up, so one of his friends was preaching, but George Whitfield, as he prayed, he said, "God, I know that, that you're going to strengthen me, and the Holy Spirit came upon him and so George Whitfield slowly got up and he started preaching and calling people for conversion, and he was even aware of the fact that his own life was coming to an end in fact, in his sermon he said Though I I live to preach Christ. I die that I might be with him. Oh, raptured soul. Oh, thought of glory that I might be with Christ. Preaches a sermon, goes home, lights a candle, goes to sleep and dies. That's how I want to go out. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding, but kind of awesome. I, I want for you and I just to serve God's purpose. God, what is your purpose for me? And then I just want to give myself to that. Listen, reality, as this is one of the last times I'll really be able to address you like this. Listen, what I want for you is that you use the best of every year of your life for the purposes of God's kingdom. That is what I want for you. That you just say, whatever season I'm in now, I I wanna give my best to God's purposes. I, if... If you're like me, I, I, you don't want to get to the end and say, I stood on the sidelines and critiqued how everybody else served God's purposes in their generation. Because that's our tendency. We sit on the sidelines. We criticize, well, I don't really like the church. It's not really doing that. It's not really doing this. Listen, I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, oh, I critiqued everyone. And, you know, that's it. I want to throw myself into God's work. So, for those of you who are older, are you passing down the lessons that you've learned to the people who are younger in this church? Are you teaching them or are you just complaining about their immaturity? And for those of you who are younger, are you teachable? Because there's a tendency in young people to think that they know everything. Like, I went to college, I studied Nietzsche, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Are you following Jesus? I don't care how much you've learned. Are you actually following Jesus? Listen, all of us, whether young or old, we need to learn together. We need to grow together. Let's all just humble ourselves and recognize that we need each other. All of us have something to learn. All of us have something to teach. Let's do this. Let's devote ourselves. Let's devote our families to the teaching of God. What legacy will you leave as a church in the coming years? What legacy will I leave? What legacy will you leave? Listen, reality, I do not believe that God's purpose for you is just to maintain. And I think there's a great tendency in all of us just to say, well, you know, everything's been fine. It's been a good run. I'm just gonna maintain. Listen, that is not what God has for you as a church. That is not what God has for you as an individual, for your marriage, for your family. I I do not want to live in part of God's kingdom just to to maintain. We are working together to glorify God, push back the kingdom of darkness and see lost lives saved, amen? That is the great and glorious purpose that, yeah, let's (laughs) praise God for that purpose. That is what you are called to. That's what, so let's do this. Look, I know the church is far from perfect. Every church is imperfect. Yes, we have a long way to go. But if you are here, if you're alive, if you have a pulse, let's do this. Let's work together. Let's throw ourselves into it. Let's pray our guts out. Let's use our gifts. Let's give money like crazy. Let's use our talents to serve God's purposes. And maybe by God's grace, we will see the kingdom advance in such turbulent times as these. Do not let an unwilling heart keep you from this work. Do not let an unwilling heart to clog up the work that God wants to do in Reality Carpinteria, Ventura, and Santa Barbara. Just get on with it. You have this incredible purpose. Give yourself to it. And when you're done, God will take you home. Amazing. See, Solomon's life should serve as a warning for us because he began well, but he didn't finish well. And I don't just want to begin well. I want to finish well. Do you? I want to finish well. See, at their best... David, men like David, they can point us to God. But only Jesus, the perfect king, came and did what neither David nor Solomon could ever do. Not just point us to God, but actually bring us to God. That is what Jesus has done. And he did so not just by laying down his life for his generation. Christ laid down his life for the sins of the world. And it is because of the sacrifice of King Jesus that we can be sure of this promise of God for us, that he will be with us, that he will never forsake us, and he will never leave us. And be confident knowing that he can fulfill his purposes through us. So my charge to you, church, is lay hold of that. I know that you have the fears and the hangups. I have mine too. But let's just get on with it. Let's lay hold of it. Like the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Church, you're no longer your own. You were bought the price. You belong to Christ. So let's lay hold of that. If you know King Jesus, then serve him and seek him. And as you do, your legacy will not be perfection, but it will point people to grace. And my prayer for my own life, for my family, and for you is that the impression that you leave simply points people to Christ. So know God, serve God, seek him. He is to be the center of your life for God knows you, he has served you and he has sought you out in Jesus Christ. So let's lay hold of that and let's hold nothing back. Are we all in? That is the question. Are we all in? Let's pray right now. Father, I do ask that if there's any hesitation in our hearts or the cares of this life just choking out what your spirit is working in our hearts overcome it. Would you overcome it even now? Father if there's anyone in this room who has never believed on the name of Jesus for their own forgiveness and salvation may they do so right now in this moment. May they simply say Jesus save me. Save me because of what you have done. And Father, for this church, I pray that the legacy of this church would not be a legacy of people who just stood on the sidelines and critiqued and criticized and got jaded or cynical, but that the legacy would be men and women who though broken experienced your redeeming power and showed that transformation in the way that they served this church and served their community and served their neighbors and served the coastlands for your glory so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, would you make us willing vessels to take those steps of faith, because of what you have done for us. Church, right now, as we're in an attitude of prayer, I want you all to stand. I want everyone to stand. Stand at attention before our God. And I want us to lift out our hands as a physical posture of surrender and worship. And Father, we just say this together. In as much as we know how, though there are many hesitations in our own hearts, when we see what you've done for us and we know the power of the Holy Spirit, we just want to say right now we're all in. We're all in for what that means for our marriages. Just sense that there are some right now who are ready to give up, awaken their hearts right now. We're all in for what it means for our children. We're all in for what it means for our neighbors. We're all in for what it means for the people we work with. We're all in for this church. And would you, by the power of your spirit, grant us the power, capacity, and willingness to do so. We declare right now together, you are worth it. You're worth it.